Uh, this morning, we're going to be in 2 Samuel, which, as I understand, is nowhere near where you've been. You've been in the book of Acts for the most part. Well, 2 Samuel. Why? Why in the world this passage? Um, I want us to look at, look at this passage because it's a fascinating story, first of all, from the life of David. Uh, it's near the beginning of his reign as king. It's well into his story, uh, the story of David's life, but about half of his story is just his journey to the throne and how he came to be king. But why this story is so helpful and why I want us to consider it together this morning is because, first of all, it is a beautiful picture of mercy and compassion as David the king shows kindness and compassion to a crippled man, a guy named Mephibosheth. And uh, mercy and compassion, those are things that do not come easily to us, if we're being honest. We struggle with the very idea of mercy, even though it's been at the very core of the mission of the church since all the way back to the apostles. It still is something that we as the church corporately struggle with, and it is something that we individually struggle with, too, to be merciful and compassionate to the people in our lives. So first, I, wanna, I think it's helpful because it's, a, it's this beautiful picture of mercy and compassion, but it's also, and maybe first and foremost, really, a powerful picture of how God relates to us. This picture that we get here of David and Mephibosheth gives us a picture of how God shows kindness and mercy to us, which is then the foundation for why we show mercy and kindness Towards others, and it, it frame, it, all of this is framed within the context of faithfulness. This whole passage, David's actions here, are framed within the context of faithfulness. And so, uh, really, whether you're a Christian or not, really sure, or know that you're not, uh, I think that what this passage shows us about faithfulness and mercy is it really strikes at some of the stuff that you and I have the hardest time coming to grips with about God and how He relates with us. So let me read this for us. I'm going to read the entire chapter of 2 Samuel chapter 9. Um, so if you've got a Bible, you can follow along. Uh, <clears throat> excuse me. This is God's word. And David said, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba, and they called him to David. And the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, there is still a son of Jonathan. He's crippled in his feet. The king said to him, where is he? And Ziba said to the king, he's in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel at Lodabar. Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Machir, the son of Amiel at Lodabar, and Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. And I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belonged to Saul and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson. 
And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, according to all that my lord the king commands his servants, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a, had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he always ate at the king's table. Now he was lame in both his feet. Let me pray for us before we take a look at this. Our Father in heaven, we do thank you for your word. We thank you that you use it to do powerful things in us, to change us and to shape us and to speak to us. We ask that that would be the case this morning. Please help us. Please use the, the words of your weak and unworthy servant to communicate your truth and your grace and mercy uh, to us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> well, it's... Um, Wedding season, right? It's actually, I guess, coming towards the tail end of it. August is when they start petering out. But um, one of the unique privileges of my job, especially given the age group that I'm mostly working with, is I get to do a lot of weddings. It's fun. I love it. I love doing weddings. Um, I imagine a lot of you have been a part of weddings at some point in some form or another. And if you've been a part of a wedding day, you know there's a whole lot that goes on, Right. Uh, you got to show up early. You got to somehow get the groomsmen to show up on time as well, which is a huge task. You got to make sure the flowers are in the right place. You got to make sure the decorations are right. You got to find the groomsmen's missing pants, um, which has happened at, at uh, five weddings I've been a part of, in, including my own. I don't know. Anyway, uh, you get pictures taken, all that stuff. Then the guests show up, and there's the music and the decorations. It's beautiful. The bride comes in, there's the groom, there's, there's everybody, the bridal party, it's awesome. Then there's this huge party afterwards, and then there's cleanup, right, uh, which is its whole, a whole different thing. So, so much happens on a wedding day. It is a huge day, but there is only one thing, right, that actually makes the wedding happen, and it only takes like a minute, right? There's only one thing that actually establishes the relationship that exists between a husband and a wife that, that establishes the grounds for faithfulness between them. And it's when you say, I, Brian, take you, Gail, Gail, that's my wife's name, uh, to be my wife, to have and to hold from this day forward for better, or for worse, for richer, for poor, to love and to cherish until we're parted by death, right? A lot of awesome stuff happened on my wedding day. Me and Gail had a great party, but the reason for faithfulness between us, right, the reason that we're married, is not because there was a great party. It's because of the covenant bond that we entered into because of the promises that we made to each other. Correct? In other words, every day that Gail sticks with me, every day that she shows me faithfulness, covenant faithfulness, is, is, is because of that bond. She is showing me covenant faithfulness every day that she sticks with me. Sometimes it's because of the way we feel. Sometimes, I should say, it's an expression of how we feel. Always it is an expression of the promises that we've made. Why am, why am I talking about marriage? You're like, Fry, you're so far off track. This is a story about David and some guy named Mephibosheth, which is a fantastic name. 
Um, why are we talking about marriage? It's because marriage is a covenant-based relationship, and it's about the only one that we regularly deal with in our day-to-day lives. Marriage is a promise-based bond that exists between two people. And all throughout the Bible, the way that we are told that God relates to us is by covenant. By God makes promises to his people, and his faithfulness to those promises is what binds us to him and establishes and secures our relationship with him. God makes promises and his faithfulness to those promises is what establishes our relationship with him. And that's actually the kind of relationship that's on display here in this passage. So verse one, David says, is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Uh, Pause button. Here, who are these people that we're dealing with? Uh, David is the king of Israel. Saul is the previous king, but not his dad. Different dynasty. So Saul, previous king. David, current king. Jonathan is Saul's son. Previous king's son. Also, incidentally, best buds with David. And not just like they're kind of tight. This is the Bible. It's actually, we get one of the sweetest pictures of a rich, deep, intimate friendship here. It's... uh, We're told their souls were knit together, Jonathan and David, they were. And because of their love for each other, it says they made a covenant between themselves. We read this in chapter 20 of of 1 Samuel. It says they made a vow in the name of God saying, the Lord shall be between me and you and between my offspring and your offspring forever. And when they made that promise to each other, as far as we know, that was the second to last time they saw each other. And then the last time they see each other, which is a few chapters later, they actually renew that covenant promise. And and, and then, so here in verse 1, as as David says, Is there anyone left from the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? That word kindness is actually a very specific Hebrew word, which is not, not necessarily important that you know Hebrew. But this word shows up all over the Old Testament. It's the word hesed, which means It's sometimes translated steadfast love, which we found in uh, Psalm 51, uh, or faithfulness, or maybe the best way to translate it would be covenant faithfulness. So what David is asking really in verse one is, is there anyone left from the house of Saul so that I may show him covenant faithfulness because of the promises I made with Jonathan? Side note. Lest you think this passage is glorifying David, um, it, right after this story comes the whole Bathsheba ordeal. David does not come out looking great, okay? This story, all of David's story, is not intended to glorify David. It's intended to point our eyes forward toward the true king, towards David's greater son, Jesus. But what we have here is this story of a beautiful picture of covenant faithfulness, and it has a whole lot to teach us about how God relates to us has a lot to teach us about what covenant faithfulness really means. And my hope for us is that we will wrestle deeply with that for a few minutes, that we would wrestle deeply with the idea that God has entered into covenant with us, people like us he's made promises to, and that he actually remains faithful to those promises. In fact, he can't not remain faithful to those promises because he is a faithful God. So what, I'll, what we'll see, just very briefly, three observations I want, us, I want to make here is that covenant faithfulness, 
as we see here in this passage, is undeserved. Uh, covenant faithfulness is unexpected. And covenant faithfulness is also extravagant. So those are your three points if you're a note taker. Um, covenant faithfulness is undeserved, unexpected, and extravagant. So first, it's undeserved. Um, so da here's David. He's wanting to find a descendant of Jonathan or even extended family. He expands it to the house of Saul. He's like, is there anybody even in the extended family so, so that I can remain faithful to the covenant I made with Jonathan? Verse 2, we're told he tracks down one of Saul's old servants, a guy named Ziba. And he says, is there anybody left of the house of Saul that I can show him covenant faithfulness? And uh, Ziba says, yeah, there's actually a son of Jonathan who's still alive and he's crippled. We st still aren't told his name, but if you were reading straight through, you might have um, some lights going off in your brain, uh, remembering that Jonathan had a crippled son. <clears throat> so David says, well, where is he? Ziba says, well, he's uh, living with this guy named Makir, who's the son of another guy named Amiel in this place called Lodabar. So verse five, David sends his men. They go to him. They get him. They bring him back to Jerusalem. And verse 6 says, Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. So, pause. So who was Mephibosheth then? He was Saul's grandson, right? Saul was Israel's first king, started out okay, turned into a total train wreck. He rejected God. He said, I'm going to do things however I want. He turns into this power-hungry, power control-freak. God rejects Saul as king. He anoints David to take his place, at which point Saul spends about 20 years hunting David down. The entire army of the nation of Israel hunts David for about 20 years. Uh, eventually, Saul, as well as his son Jonathan, are both killed in battle. David gets installed as the king, but there's this other son of Saul who also claims the throne. There's a civil war for a few years. Um, and uh, but the, this rival king, Ishbosheth, gets assassinated. David's finally king. He's on the throne. Now, ordinary practice in those days in any nation would have been anyone else from the rival king's family who might try to claim a right to the throne would be executed. Just common practice. It's just how dynasties work, I guess. Um, so here's Mephibosheth the only surviving heir of Saul, the last descendant of the rival dynasty. What do you think he's expecting when David sends his men and says, we found you, the king wants you, and we're bringing you to Jerusalem? Verse 6, Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. He calls him by name, which is a dignifying thing to do. And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness. I will show you covenant faithfulness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. What did Mephibosheth do to receive David's favor? Nothing. Right? He didn't even come under his own power. He was, he's a crippled man who was carried. David sought him. David found him. David went and he got him and he brought him to himself. And not because of anything he'd done. And not because he was worthy of it in and of himself. 
but because of a promise that was made out of sheer love before he had even been born. What a beautiful picture, isn't it, of how God relates to us. Of how people like us receive God's favor. It's not because of anything we do. It's not because we are worthy in and of ourselves. And it's not because we even come under our own power. It's because of a promise that was made. He has covenanted himself to us out of sheer love before we were even born. So it's covenant faithfulness is undeserved. Second, it's unexpected. So there's more to this Mephibosheth's story than, what, um, than, than just the fact that he's the rightful heir to the rival dynasty. We also know that he's crippled. It's mentioned explicitly twice in this passage. We actually know the story behind this, behind why he's crippled. Um, so when Jonathan, his father, and Saul, his grandfather, were both killed in battle against the Philistines, everyone knew what the next step was in this battle, in conquering Israel, it would be to kill all of their household. And so we read this in chapter four of 2 Samuel. It says, Jonathan, the son of Saul, uh, had a son who was crippled in his feet. And here's how that happened. It says, he was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. And his nurse took him up and fled. And as she fled in her haste, he fell and became lame. And his name was Mephibosheth. So here's what's going on. Mephibosheth has spent his entire life since he was five years old in hiding. Hiding who he is, hiding his royal identity, because it's not something he can be proud of. It's actually a threat to his safety. Uh, He's had privileges denied to him. He has been hiding in a place called Lodabar, which literally means the place of no pasture, the place of no rest. And all of it's accentuated and right in front of his face every single day because he's crippled. He can't do things on his own power. And all of this happened to him when he was too young to even understand what was going on. He lives in constant hiding and constant shame about his true identity and not because of anything that he did. Like, I, I imagine that when Mephibosheth heard the name King David, I think he probably hated David. There's probably some resentment there. This is just conjecturing at this point. But you got to imagine he would think that he's the reason my life looks the way it does. He's the reason I'm not the king right now. Uh, he's the reason I can't walk. He's the reason I grew up without my dad. He's the reason I've been hiding who I am since I was five years old. And he probably would have grown up hearing stories about great King David. And I, you just imagine some, some deep bitterness. And of, course, of course, it wasn't David's fault. It was really Saul's fault, his grandfather. But I'm sure that didn't keep Mephibosheth from resenting David. And, and, and I imagine, imagine as he's brought to David, going through his mind is probably... First of all, I'm terrified about what's about to happen, but I also cannot stand that man. And some of you, I imagine, see yourself somewhat there. Um, some Some of us feel like we've spent a great deal of our life in hiding without being able to be honest about our what's some things that are true about us. Some of, for some of us, because of things that we've done. For others of us, it's because of things that have been done to us, because of what other people have brought into our life. Maybe you hear Mephibosheth's story 
of, of shame and hiding that's brought on him because of other people's actions at an age where he was too young to even understand what was going on. And you hear that and you think, that sounds awfully familiar. For some of us, our lives have been marked by deep bitterness and hiding and shame. Some of you have even said to God in your heart or maybe even with your mouth, because of the things that you carry around and because of the things in your life, you've even said, this is your fault and I'm mad about it. Even if you know it's not really his fault or even if you know it's been brought on to you by other people. Covenant faithfulness is unexpected because it's not how we think, right? It's not how we work. We kind of think like Mephibosheth. Verse 8 says, Who am I that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? We kind of think like Mephibosheth. He's saying, like, I look at myself and what I see is the rotting corpse of a dog. And I expect you to be disgusted by me. There's deep bitterness there. And our expectation that we carry into our relationship with God is that you will relate with me in the same way that I relate with myself. You will see me very similarly to the way that I perceive my own worth and the way that I perceive my own value. But covenant faithfulness instead says your worth to me, in fact, is not based on that. My love for you is rooted in the fact that I have promised myself to you. Not because of how beautiful or defiled you feel, not based on the things that you feel like you might need to hide from. It's beautiful. Really, here's, here's another way to think of it, speaking of weddings, right? What, what Jesus says to you as he covenants himself to you is, I, Jesus, take you, Brian, to be my wife, to have and to hold from this day forward and forever, for my better and for your worse, uh, for your sickness and for my health, uh, for in, in my riches and in your poverty, to love and to cherish and not even death is going to part us. That is covenant faithfulness. And that really is the only remedy that any of us could ever ask for, for our deep bitterness of soul that we bring into our lives. Lastly, briefly, covenant faithfulness is extravagant. Look at this. This is awesome. David doesn't just say, okay, hey, Mephibosheth, I kind of made this deal, so I'm not going to kill you. You can just come and be my servant. You can work for me, and I won't kill you. Um, no, he says, come and be my son. He restores his inheritance. He gives him all, everything that his grandfather owned, his land, his servants, all of it. And not only that, verse 7, you shall eat at my table always. Verse 10, Mephibosheth shall always eat at my table. Verse 11, Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. Verse 13, Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem for he always ate at the king's table. Over and over. That is, that is uh, repetitive on purpose, in order to emphasize his rightful place where Mephibosheth belonged was at the king's table, like one of his sons. 
because of, his, because of the king's faithfulness to his promise. This is such a beautiful picture of the gospel. The king's enemies are not only spared, they are actually invited in and given a seat at the table and made to be his children, made to be his heirs. That is what Jesus does for us. Here's the really hard thing for some of us to believe that we have to come to grips with. That if God is actually faithful to his promises, this is a guarantee, but it's hard to believe. God is not stingy with you. God is not stingy with us. So like, for instance, when you're pulling out of the grocery store parking lot, and there's the guy with the cardboard sign that says anything helps. And we're kind of thinking, like, what's the bare minimum I can do to help this guy out and still feel really good about myself? Um, you know, after all, it's not like I owe him anything. That is not how God treats his children. That is not how God thinks about showing mercy. God's covenant mercy is not stingy. It is not the bare minimum. It is actually extravagantly generous. And actually, the Lord's Supper is such a beautiful, helpful reminder of this reality. The king, the king has not just thrown you some change. He's not just handed you a granola bar out the window. The king has actually brought you in and seated you at the table and made you his son, inheritance and all. And he even says, like, look, I'm not just being kind and merciful. I'm not, like, just kind of being nice to you. Because of Jesus, because of who he is, because of what he has done, and because of, uh, <clears throat> because of your being united with him, this is actually rightfully yours. I'm not just being kind. I actually owe this to you. I cannot withhold from you a seat at my table without betraying the promises that I made to you in the cross of Jesus Christ where your debt was paid for once and for all. That's what covenant faithfulness means. I can't help but imagine, all, what do you think was going through Mephibosheth's mind that first night at dinner at the king's table? Like I picture him being carried in by servants since he can't come in under his own power and uh, I imagine some people sort of whispering to each other, sort of looking at him and thinking, you know, like, him? Who's that guy? Why, what in the world is he doing here? And maybe he also himself was still carrying around this sense of shame and this gut instinct to hide. And thinking in his head, I'm sure, I'm surely he was thinking, there is no way I belong here. With my life looking the way it has for all this time, there's no way this is where I belong. And I picture David standing up and saying, hey, everybody, this is Mephibosheth. He's Jonathan's son. And this is where he belongs. He belongs right here at this table alongside all of my other children. Which incidentally is what we would say to you, to anyone who would join us at the table while we come in perhaps thinking there's no way I belong here. There's no way this is actually the right place for me. We would actually say, no, because of Jesus, this is exactly where you belong. 
We'd say, hey, everybody, this is the newest member of our family. This is where he belongs. This is where she belongs. Just in closing, how does this connect then to the way we think about showing mercy to others? I think if you're dealing with this passage, you've got to deal with the idea of, of showing compassion to others. Really, it's just this. It's that I, I, the way that we care for others, the way that we show compassion to others, the way we relate to them is always going to be informed by the way we understand how God relates to us in Jesus. So in other words, if you want to understand how well someone understands the mercy of God, which is rooted in the faithfulness of, to us, rooted, rooted in his faithfulness to us in Jesus. If you want to understand how well someone understands that, look at how well they care for those around them. That's not just like my big idea. This was Jesus' big idea. Um, if we don't understand that our relationship with our Father is covenantal, if we don't understand that our relationship with our Father is based on promises that He has made, then we are going to be constantly doubting His love for us. We are going to be constantly feeling this instinct to run and hide. We are going to be constantly trying to earn His love and probably also not showing any mercy to others because we're going to relate with them the way that we expect God to relate to us. But if God relates to us uh, based on a promise, or I should say, imagine if God related with us based on what we bring to the table. Or imagine if God related to us based on our faithfulness. If that were the case, we'd be hopeless. But if our security and our relationship with him is rooted in promises that he has made to us in Jesus Christ, we'll be safe forever. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, um, we, uh, these are, your faithfulness is really too big of a concept for any of us to really wrap our minds around, and, and we need your help. We ask that you would do that for us. Father, forgive us for the many ways that we wrongfully imagine how you relate to us. Forgive us for the ways that we think that somehow we have earned a seat at your table. I pray that even this morning you would show us again more clearly the richness and the beauty and the extravagance of your faithfulness to us in Jesus Christ. And I pray that you would help us, grow us, to see ourselves in light of our union with Christ before we see ourselves in light of anything that we bring to the table. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.